we're going to read tonight, I'm going to start reading from uh, chapter 2 and verse 1 of Ephesians. We've been working our way through this book and the first three verses we covered last week but we're going to read them just to set it in a context. So reading from the first verse. And Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And then we move on to what we're going to focus on tonight. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's just pray. Father, we just want to thank you for the incredible, unbelievable truths that are found in those verses. And we pray that you just give us clear understanding, and more than that, that you'll bring these truths to our heart, and that as a result of understanding them, our love for you will grow deeper, as will our commitment to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you might not be aware of this, but preaching can be a very, very dangerous business, because you're only just a sentence Sometimes just a mere word away from humiliation and disaster. For example, a friend of mine at one time worked for IVP, you know, the well-known publisher of Christian books. And as, as part of his job, he went around Bible conferences and, and teaching events. So he told me that at one of these events, the preacher was preaching on that well-known psalm, Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. And he reached the very climax of his sermon. He was standing, gripping the pulpit with both hands, when he made his impassioned plea to the assembled congregation. Friends, he thundered, pausing for dramatic effect. Friends, it is your pants God wants. (laughs) Now, we know what he meant to say, and he was right. But people being people, let's just say that the service did not end in the somber atmosphere of conviction he was hoping for. Now, what brought this to mind for me was looking at this passage and being reminded of another story of the preacher 
who introduced his sermon for that evening by announcing that tonight I want to preach on three big butts. Not easy to recover from that either. However, that word is the pivot around which this passage, indeed around which I believe the entire gospel message revolves. But God. But God. This moves us from looking at we are without Christ, that terrifying picture portrayed for us in the first three verses of this chapter, to looking at what God has done for us in Christ. The incredible truths shared with us in the next seven verses that set out for us the most remarkable contrast in all human history. From what we are without Christ to what we are in Christ. So while last week we looked at what God has saved us from, in verses 1 to 3, that we've been saved from death, from spiritual death, the result of our sin that separates us from the life of a holy God. And we've been saved from slavery, from slavery first to the world and its influences, from slavery to the flesh as natural desires that are good as given by God are distorted by sin and come to dominate our lives and to keep us from God. Also from slavery to the devil. Because he's the one who stands beside, who manipulates and orchestrates all the various influences in our lives, again, to keep us from God. And finally, we are saved from condemnation. For our sin, you see, our rebellion against God, our rejection of God, brings us under God's wrath, under the inevitable, necessary, just reaction of a holy God to sin, and leaves us then condemned in this life and facing only final judgment and final condemnation at this life's end. But we have been saved from this. For God in Christ, in love, paid the price for our sin that His holiness demands. As in the perfect, sinless life of Christ, God became a man and gave Himself then for us. Now what we're going to do now is we're going to explore more fully tonight the positive side of this. We're going to cover things like what we've been saved by, what we've been saved for, etc. And we're going to begin to open these verses up by focusing, first of all, on what God has done. What God has done. Now here, verses 5 and 6 are key. That God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Now what Paul's linking here are three key events in the life and experience of Jesus Christ. His resurrection. God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. His ascension. And God raised us up with Christ and his reign, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Now you see, in chapter 1, all these three key events in the life of Christ there are seen as expressions 
of God's mighty power exerted by him in Christ. So you see, what Paul is saying here then is that as we put our faith in Christ, our faith in what he has done for us, then that faith unites us with Christ. That faith joins us to Christ in such a way that his experience becomes our experience. That we share through faith in Christ's resurrection, in his ascension, and in his reign. Now, of course, we only know this in in part in this life. All that this will fully mean to share in Christ's resurrection, ascension, and reign, we'll only know when we stand in God's presence. But so now, you see, now we are no longer spiritually dead. Now we are no longer slaves to the forces and powers of evil. And we are no longer objects of wrath condemned and facing God's final condemnation. No, now, in God's eyes, and this is what is spiritually and so eternally true, this is what really matters, now in God's eyes we are united to Christ, we are in Christ, and now we know this in part. But one day, We'll know it in full. But but please understand that this isn't just about extravagant statements and flowery language. It isn't. This is truth. If you are a Christian tonight, this is the truth of who you are in Christ, of what God has done for you in Him. This is how God sees you in Christ. This is what one day, as we stand in His presence, we will be in perfection, fulfilled in Him. And this is what we are now in Christ. We know we don't always live fully as the resurrected, ascending, reigning people of Jesus. We know that our lives don't always show fully the marks of the fact that by faith we're united to Him in the way that they should. No, because you see, We still live in a world where sin is present. We still live in a world where, though defeated, the forces of evil are still active. And while we are on this earth, while we are in this body of flesh, these things can still exert an influence in us. But that doesn't change. The fact that we're now spiritually alive in Jesus Christ. The fact that we are no longer spiritual slaves for the power of sin and evil has been broken in our lives. We can, yes, we can still choose to sin. But the difference is we are no longer dominated by sin. So we can choose also not to sin. And we can do that because the life and the power of the risen, ascending, reigning Jesus Christ lives, is alive in our hearts. It sounds incredible. It sounds unbelievable. It is incredible. And it is unbelievable. But it's also true. This is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Now, my second point that I want to to move on to now really is just an opening up of what I've just shared. For we've just looked at what God has done. Now I want us to look next at what God has done, unpacked in a sense. And what I want to look at here are things like why God did this, what it rests upon, how we can make it ours, 
and what it should mean for us. There may be one or two other things along the way. So let's begin with motive. Motive. What was God's motive for doing what he's done? What was it that moved God to send Jesus Christ to save us? Mercy. It was mercy provoked by the love that is a fundamental part of God's nature, of who he is, that then motivated God, moved him to save us. Verse 4 into verse 5. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Now you see the roots of the word Paul uses here that we translate into English as mercy lead to this this word being defined by no less than the Greek philosopher Aristotle 300 years and counting before the letter to the Ephesians was even written defined by him as an emotional concern for those who undeservedly suffered some calamity those who have suffered or think that they might suffer the same disaster are most likely to feel pity or mercy. And you see, well, what this brings to mind for me as I I think about this, are incidents like that we find in the, the book of Exodus, where God's people were enslaved in Egypt and suffering terribly at the hands of their Egyptian masters. And, and so they cried out to God for help. And Ephesians, sorry, Exodus, I've got Ephesians in the brain. Exodus 2.25 tells us of God's response. And it says there, so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And that's a pattern that repeats itself again and again in the Old Testament. God's people usually, because of their sin, get themselves into a situation where they're suffering, where they're oppressed. They cry out to God. And though they've broken their covenant with Him, though they have been disloyal and unfaithful, and though because of that He need not respond, yet because of His mercy, because He is a God of mercy, Again and again and again, God does respond. But you see, the situation here is, is something rather different. For you see here, this is not about showing mercy to a people he has a covenant with. Rather, this is about God showing mercy to all mankind. And this is not about God dealing with a particular situation like the exodus that his people are facing. Rather, this is about God dealing with the root forces of sin and evil that oppress all mankind, that ravage and inflict suffering on all humanity. But crucially, in addition, this mercy that Paul speaks of here differs from the classic Greek understanding of mercy in one all-important way. For the mercy that this Greek word originally spoke of, remember, was emotional concern for those who had undeservedly suffered some calamity. And also, it was most likely to come, we're told, from someone who had suffered or thought they might suffer in the same kind of way. But you see, we, mankind, we are not undeserving 
of our faith. We're not undeserving of spiritual death and condemnation. We're not because it's our sin. It's our choice to sin that has brought us to this point. It's our sin that separates us from a holy God who can have nothing to do with sin or anything associated with sin. And it is our sin that has brought suffering into our lives and into our world. So we're not undeserving of our fate. To the contrary, that is what we deserve. What we don't deserve is mercy. And as for God showing mercy because he had suffered or because he thought he might suffer at some time in the same way, well, why would a perfect, holy, all-powerful God ever suffer in this way or ever imagine he would? Now, there is only one reason for the mercy of God towards mankind. Only one reason why he saw us suffering, lost, and forsaken, heading towards judgment and final condemnation. There is only one reason why God reached out in mercy toward us. It's because of who he is. It's because at the core of who he is is love. Because he is a God of love. Again, verse 4. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. With the word for love here being that that special word for God's love that the Bible uses to mark out that unique love of God. The love whose defining character one writer I read put in terms that it's a love that seeks the highest good in the one loved. It is given irrespective of merit and to those who are undeserving. You know, what, what strikes home to me as I read over these verses are the adjectives that Paul uses here. Where Paul talks there of a God who is rich in mercy. He talks of his great love, which just strengthens and deepens and intensifies both the depth of our need and above all, the depth of the mercy and of the love of God. Next, I want us to move on to look at basis. That is, what is the basis for what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? What does this, this work of God, what does it rest on from beginning to end? And again, it's a one-word answer. Grace. Grace. A word that Paul uses no less than three times in these few verses. Verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. Verse 7, he speaks of the incomparable riches of his grace. And verse 8 repeats again, it is by grace you've been saved. Now what we're talking about here is that, that moved, moved by his mercy and love, God then acts in grace, in free, undeserved, unmerited goodness towards us. And again, Paul uses adjectives to express the, the extreme, indeed the limitless nature of God's grace. For you see, in order to rescue us from spiritual death, from spiritual slavery and condemnation, 
In order to do that, God in Christ became a man and lived among us. God in Christ came and died for our sin in order to make it possible for us to escape spiritual death. He came, yes, and died on that cross, but then he rose from the dead and so broke the power of death and sin, broke the power of the forces of evil. He took upon himself the wrath, the condemnation, the judgment of God as he took our sin upon himself at the cross. All in order that through him it might be possible for us again to enjoy and know a relationship of love with our Heavenly Father. You see, we are saved by grace. From beginning to end, our salvation depends upon God reaching out and rescuing us, undeserving, unworthy as we are. The next word I want us to move on to look at is means. By what means does this salvation become ours? What do we have to do in order to reach out and take hold of that hand God is holding out towards us? Again, it's a a one-word answer. Faith. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. Now, a very simple but accurate definition of faith was one shared with me by George Wieland, a great friend of mine at Spurgeon's, who's now the Director of Mission Research and Training at Carey College in Auckland, New Zealand. That's a big title. Anyway, he's a good guy, but... How he defined faith, and it's a lot simpler than his title, was trust that leads to obedience. As simple as that, trust that leads to obedience. So when Paul talks of faith then, what he's talking about, he's talking about trust in Jesus Christ. Trust that he is both God and man, fully God, fully man, in one unique person. Trust. That he died on the cross to pay the price of our sin. Trust that he rose from the dead, defeating death and all those evil powers. Trust that he alone is our Savior and our Lord. That we are called to put our faith in him. We are called to trust him and then to live lives of obedience to him. With this not being something, by the way, that we're asked to do by ourselves. God doesn't ask us to simply try harder to be better. He doesn't because, you see, as we put our trust in Jesus, as we've already said and touched on, as we do that, we're united to Christ by faith. And God then comes into our lives in power, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then that power that defeated Satan, that power that raised Jesus, that power that sees him now in heaven at God's right hand in that place of authority, that power, as we seek God and give ourselves to God, as we obey God, that power then enables us to live lives that are changed, that are transformed. In fact, when Paul speaks here of being saved through faith, the the tense that he uses actually suggests a completed act with continuing results. So you see, being saved is something that definitely should have continuing results. We are saved through faith, 
And then the power and life of God that comes into our lives as we obey God, as we seek God, should lead to us living more and more transformed lives, to us working out our salvation, living lives that more and more reflect the life of Jesus Christ. So you see then, salvation is something that, happen, that happens in an instant, whether or not we're emotionally aware of that. But it's then a process. It's a process that's supposed to work out in our lives. It's a, a process that we're supposed to grow into, to grow in. But there's something else that, that Paul tells us clearly about that faith, this faith that saves, and it's verse 8 again, that this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, you see, there are those who would say, and there is a case in terms of the language that Paul uses here, that when Paul says in this verse that it is a gift of God, that that actually refers to salvation as a whole. And that's true. That every part of it from beginning to end is a gift of God. But I believe certainly in this is included faith. That the faith that brings us to Jesus is a gift from God. Along the way, we may at times cooperate with Him, but it's God who always gives us the faith that enables us to respond. And certainly, the faith that brings us to faith, that faith that saves us, is a gift. It's a gift. And it has to be. For how else could we be saved? How else could we be set free from the chains that Satan has us bound up in, those chains of sin? How else could we do it? We could never do it of ourselves. Only God gives us the faith that sets us free, that saves. But of course, there's also another reason why this has to be so. Why the faith that saves has to be God's gift. Because if it were of us, it would then become a work. And it would then become something that we could boast about, something that we could take pride in, our faith. And so then, human pride, that root of sin, would corrupt and nullify even salvation in Christ. Well, finally and briefly, I want to look at one last word. Result. What is the result? What should be the result of this salvation God has given us? Well, I believe this should be twofold. First of all, from our perspective, this should lead to goods what good works. For verse 10 it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, this work of salvation, this new creation, this results in us being God's masterpiece out of all He's created. That's what the, the word workmanship is pointing to. And this is supposed to lead to good works. It's supposed to lead to Christians living lives that are marked by good works that are consistent with the life of Jesus Christ. But here, you know, you might want to 
to ask the question. But doesn't that, though, clash with, with what you've just said, and more importantly, with what Paul says in the previous verses, 8 and 9, that salvation is the gift of God, that it's not by work, so that no one can boast. Well, actually, no, it doesn't. Not if we understand clearly, if we understand properly the sequence of what Paul's saying. And John Stott puts it as well, as usual as anyone could. He says, good works are indispensable to salvation. Not as its grounds or means, however, but as its consequence and evidence. We are not saved because of good works, verse 8 and 9, but we are created then in Christ Jesus for good works. So one result of what God has done for us in salvation is good works. The other that I see is more of a a direct God perspective. It's coming more from God's perspective, and it's there in verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We're talking about God's glory. Because you see that phrase there might show what it actually carries is the meaning of to demonstrate. And it's almost got the idea of someone putting a piece of art on a wall and letting others see it, standing back. So they can see and admire. Another phrase here, the coming ages, that would seem most probably to have a twofold meaning that the the coming ages, in one sense, run from the time of Christ up to today and beyond, but that then these times climax at the second coming of Christ. When then God's glory. All that he's done in and through Jesus Christ will then be fully unveiled for all to see. So, what Paul is saying then is that right now, his church, that we in our lives, as we live out this new salvation life, that we are a pointer, that we are a demonstration to the world of what the grace and kindness and mercy of God can do in a human life is given to him. And then, at the end of time, we will be, the church will be, the ultimate demonstration of what God's grace and kindness can do. And that then God will, in a sense, he'll point to us and say, see there, see in the beauty of of my people. See my masterpiece. See what I have done. And then all the glory will go to him. As it should. For who praises a work of art when the creator, the master, is standing by his side? You may admire the work, but all the praise All the glory goes to the Master. And I'm sure that right now, those of us who know Jesus, as we think now of what God has done for us in Christ, as we think of what this has brought into our lives, as we think and reflect on God's grace and kindness and mercy to us in Christ, as we think of the life and hope 
that because of him is now ours. I'm sure that we just want to join in that praise. We want to now give him the glory that he is so worthy of. Let's do that now. Let's just come to God in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for just the wonder of what Paul shares with us in Ephesians. The wonder of that salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. The wonder of who we are in Christ as we stand tonight in your presence. For the promise of all that you are doing and all you will do in our lives as we give ourselves to you. Lord, move in your church. Move in the hearts of your people. And may we seek to live lives that bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song together and then we invite those who know and love Jesus to gather round the table of the Lord. There we see symbolized for us in the bread and wine the wonder of our salvation, the grace of God. We're going to stand after the introduction and sing Man of Sorrows, Lamb of God. <laughs>